Let's take a look at the evidence presented at trial that convinced the jury of Oscar's guilt and where that evidence stands in 2019. Beth Brumley. The jury did not hear that her witness identification of Oscar was tainted by seeing his photo in the paper as a murder suspect. That fact is clearly contained in Woodlake P.D. Diaz's report of December 31, 1975. She also gave roughly six different times and two different locations for the incident. She was unable to describe or identify Oscar's truck. Her trial testimony was impeached by D.A. Powell at closing because she placed Oscar in Woodlake at the exact same time he was known to be in North Visalia, near the Owens house. There is no evidence that the incident Beth described was related to Donna's murder in any way. Under current California rules of evidence, Brumley's identification and testimony would be considered tainted, irrelevant, and unreliable, and could not be admitted at trial. Gloria Mascoro Sheriff Wiley was photographed showing Oscar's photo to Gloria on the morning of Saturday, December 27, 1975, and Gloria confirms that in an on-site interview with Mrs. Sajian from the Visalia Times Delta. That was the story and caption on the front page of the newspaper, and Mrs. Sajian's sworn testimony at trial. She stands by that story and testimony today. Gloria gave a suspect description that did not match Oscar, and she described the suspect's vehicle as seen from behind as a plain white pickup with no black and white Ford lettering on the tailgate. She said that she first saw the truck around 3.25, and the flashing incident happened within minutes of 3.30. D.A. Powell stated at closing that Oscar could not have arrived at that location prior to 3.40. Under current California rules of evidence, Gloria's identification and testimony would be considered tainted, unreliable, and irrelevant, and could not be admitted at trial. Philip Moscoro. He also described seeing a plain white pickup truck from the back driving away from him. He identified it as perhaps a Dodge with round taillights. He did not see Oscar's distinctive Ford tailgate or tall rectangular taillights. The Muscoro family's employment by Donna's grandparents, documented pressure from TCSO, and lack of contemporaneous reporting of the incident raises insurmountable questions about their objectivity and reliability. Under current California rules of evidence, Mr. Muscoro's testimony would be barred as irrelevant and unreliable. E. Powell explained the lack of mud, blood, and physical evidence on Oscar's clothing by accusing him of wearing his white painter's pants and disposing of them after the homicide. Today, it is known that the pants were found on the passenger side floor of Oscar's truck, photographed in the impound yard, but inexplicably never logged into evidence. The pants were neither damaged nor missing. Powell lied to the jury. This was grotesque prosecutorial misconduct and it was incredibly damaging to Oscar's defense. This alone should have overturned the conviction and would never be allowed into evidence today. Criminalist Morton testified that a blonde hair found on the sleeve of Oscar's sweater could have belonged to Donna. That appeared to be a smoking gun, the only physical evidence that tied Donna to Oscar, and Powell let his imagination run wild at closing, with tales of the hair being pulled from Donna during a struggle in the truck. In fact, Morton had completed three rounds of ABO testing that proved that the hair was blood type O, Oscar's type, not Donna's A. That exculpatory testing was not disclosed to the defense. Obviously, it was Oscar's own hair on his sweater, and there should have been no testimony about it since it was irrelevant and immaterial to the case. Several TCSO officers gave hearsay testimony that after Oscar's arrest, he lied and or changed his alibi story. It was undisputed that Oscar had invoked his right to remain silent and asked for an attorney prior to any questioning. Miranda requires the suppression of any such statements as evidence at trial. Additionally, hearsay statements of police interviews are inadmissible under California rules of evidence. Every police interrogation must be videotaped, in its entirety, or it cannot be admitted at trial. TCSO refused to produce any interview tape. TCSO's statements that called Oscar a liar are also inadmissible as unsupported by the evidence. TCSO's own statements showed that Oscar gave a consistent, linear account of his afternoon, supported by eyewitnesses and the drive times. 
He never said he was with Bill Rose, only at Rose's house, as stated in the testimony of TCSO King at trial. Today, the jury would hear nothing about the questioning. TCSO would not be allowed to state that Oscar lied to them, and the DA could not call him a liar in front of the jury. Rick Carter's third statement to the police is clearly inadmissible under California rules of evidence. It conflicted with his first statement, which was freely given within 12 hours of the original events and found truthful on a polygraph exam. There was a mysterious second statement, which apparently supported Carter's first interview and angered TCSO. The third statement was given after a false arrest for murder and unlawful jailing. There were at least two hours of questioning before the interview tape was turned on, and even then, Carter still started out by saying that Oscar got home at 4.15. Carter's third statement was coerced, coached, and totally unreliable. The jury would never hear it today. That pushes the time of Oscar's arrival home back to 4.15, making his involvement in the murder impossible. D.A. Ward has hitched his entire argument against Oscar's alibi to the most ridiculous witness in the case, Bill Irwin, the guy who agreed to buy the freezer and bikes from Frank Thomas. In January 1976, Irwin told Pettyjohn that he got to Garden Street around 3 p.m. and stayed for 30 to 45 minutes. In June, he told TCSO Chamberlain that he arrived at 1.30 and left at 2. Yet in July, on the witness stand, he claimed that he arrived at 2.15 and was gone by 2.30. Since he didn't drop his wife off at the Tulare Hospital until 1.55, his sworn statement to Chamberlain proved to be a total lie. His testimony at trial gave a timeline that didn't allow for driving, let alone two stops to load freezers and bikes, and he shorted the time on Garden Street from at least half an hour to maybe five minutes. Irwin's wife testified that he didn't return to the hospital until 4.15, yet there was no explanation for why it would have taken an hour and 45 minutes to make that 20-minute drive. Just like with Carter, D.A. Ward is arguing that we should ignore Irwin's first, most reliable statement that agrees with all of the other witnesses and drive times, pretend the second sworn statement never even happened, and rely solely on the nonsensical and coached third statement. Today, under the California Rules of Evidence, Irwin would be deemed an unreliable witness, and none of his statements or testimony would be admissible for any purpose in the case. There are serious questions about the trail of Donna's clothing that supposedly led to Oscar's house. In addition to the M.O. being similar to a December 1976 C.A.R. attack, there were contemporaneous newspaper and TCSO reports that raised doubts about where those items were originally located. Absent a full investigation into the reports that the undergarments and one shoe were found in the grove with the bike and that items of victims' clothing were recovered from Neil Ranch but not logged into evidence and the whereabouts and availability of D'Angelo the clothing trail is unreliable and irrelevant as evidence, and inadmissible. It would also need to be considered as proof that pointed to the alternate suspect in any conviction integrity review process. We have wasted so much time discussing D.A. Ward's ridiculous lies about the tire and heel print evidence, we can barely even mention it again. The plaster cast taken on Road 176 eliminated those tracks as coming from Oscar's truck, and the partial track from one tire at the bike scene couldn't be identified as a particular make and model or be specifically matched to Oscar's truck. The tracks photographed at Neal Ranch were either eliminated by Morton and his lab and never mentioned at trial, or could not be identified or matched to Oscar. Additionally, all of the Neal Ranch tracks were found north of the murder scene, a direction that doesn't fit any other part of the state's story. Morton repeatedly stated the quality of the photos was inadequate for comparison purposes, and Powell admitted after the trial that the camera was taking distorted images, and it was replaced. The heel print is infuriating. Oscar was not wearing his boots, period. Morton testified about one single photo of a partial print which was taken with the same bad camera. On cross-exam, Morton specifically said, that he could not say that the photo matched Oscar's boots. 
and could not even say if the heel came from a boot or a shoe. He also admitted that Oscar's boots had no blood or mud on them. There was nothing scientific about Morton's testimony. It was vague opinion testimony that did not and could not ever qualify as expert. In the crime scene photos, TCSO officers wearing cowboy boots are seen walking all around the area. None of their boots were compared or eliminated. The same with the tire tracks. Not one vehicle other than Oscar's was ever examined, compared, or eliminated. Several TCSO officers testified that they were specifically ordered not to photograph or document dozens of tire and footprints found at the evidence scenes. This includes prints by both of Donna's shoes, the bike, the ski mask, and the east side of Road 176 near the underpants. If Sergeant Bird believed that any item of evidence pointed away from Oscar, he hid it from the defense and the jury. There is nothing scientific, reliable, or relevant about those tire or heel prints, and none of that evidence or testimony could be admitted in any California court today. The judge erred at trial by admitting Oscar's pocket knife as the possible murder weapon. Dr. Miller testified that it could have made the wounds, but offered nothing more than that. No scientific basis such as wound depth or width, just maybe that it was possible. Again, that is not expert testimony, based in scientific certainty. In addition to the lack of damage to the knife, Grubb's testimony was that it was free of blood, skin, tissue, and fibers. There was nothing that matched it to the crime or to Donna. Additional testing was done in 2002, and the inside springs were swabbed. A nearly microscopic amount of rust was removed and gave a positive oxidation response. It was not tested as human blood or ABO type, and the swab did not contain female DNA or Donna's DNA. Oscar's knife was not the murder weapon, is not relevant evidence, and could not be admitted in court in 2019. the single most damning piece of evidence at trial, even worse than the invoice book, was Blake's sentence that, quote, human semen was contained on those pubic hairs. That provided the entire motive for the crime. There was no physical sexual assault, no spermatozoa, and no visible ejaculate. So without Blake's statement, there would have been no attempted rape and no motive for Oscar to commit the crime. Donahue didn't have the evidence tested by his own expert, question Blake about the scientific basis for his finding, ask for a Fry hearing on the reliability of the science, or object to the testimony in any way. The very idea that Blake found a microscopic amount of pre-ejaculate that had no sperm cells is beyond improbable. It's nearly impossible. Even if there were some bizarre explanation for finding only pre-ejaculation fluid, 40% of such fluid samples would still be expected to have identifiable sperm cells. We also know that there were multiple documented non-seminal sources of phosphatase present in his sample, including body fluids, nematodes, citrus debris, and tree spray. Even in 1976, a positive AP test alone could not support a finding of semen. We know that Grubb did not confirm Blake's finding when he examined the sample and it did not contain the antibodies necessary for it to be Oscar's O blood type, or a mixed sample of O and A. It was conclusively determined to be only Donna's type A. Blake repeatedly refused to produce his lab notes, so it's impossible to know if he even got a true positive, made a simple mistake running or interpreting the test, or intentionally overstated the results to help the state. This is exactly the type of junk science that has been found at the root of many wrongful convictions. This testimony should not have been admitted at trial and could not be admitted under the California Rules of Evidence today. There is absolutely no way that Donahue should have lost the motion for change of venue. Several lower-profile cases in Tulare County were moved right before and after Clifton's trial, and none had the kind of oversaturation of press coverage or completely false charges of rape and sodomy publicized to the local jurors. Between the end of December and mid-April, there were numerous false statements made to the press about the non-existent sexual assault 
and absolutely no coverage when Powell quietly dropped the charges of rape, sodomy, and failure to register as a sex offender. We can't imagine a more clear-cut case for change of venue. The jurors were irreparably tainted by false information and several new parties to the case. Those issues alone should have given Oscar a new trial with an impartial jury. One of the most puzzling aspects of the defense is the total and complete lack of investigation into when and where the invoice book was last seen and could have been stolen. We've poured over every single note and report from both Donahue and Pettyjohn, and there is not one mention of it. There is no record that they asked Oscar or any of his family members about it. It should have been easy for Pettyjohn to figure it out on December 27, 1975, but he didn't. Since we know it was last used on the 23rd, the defense only needed to account for its location on three days. Not only could Donahue have offered the jury a plausible theft scenario, they might actually have been able to uncover valuable information about the thief. Although Donahue raised the lack of fingerprints at trial, he never clearly stated the idea that the real killer wiped off the prints and planted the invoice book to frame Oscar. Every single investigator we've talked to about the case has seen the invoice book as evidence that points away from Oscar rather than towards him. It's too neat and convenient. Add that to the homicide scene staged to look like a sexual assault and the clothing trail to Oscar's house, and it should have been nothing but red flags. A simple check with the Garden Street witnesses would have cleared Oscar that first day and refocused the investigation on the question of who would have and could have framed him. We all know the answer to that question now, and it's easy to see why D.A. Ward was so desperate to falsely clear D'Angelo. We've never really been able to tell exactly what was going on with Ray Donahue, but the best-case scenario paints a picture of grossly ineffective assistance of counsel. We've heard many different theories from people who knew him. Some feel that he was over his head with the complexities of the case and seemed to assume goodwill from TCSO and Powell that simply did not exist. Others believe that he thought Oscar was guilty and just gave him the minimal required defense. After the trial, Oscar expressed concern over a threatening letter sent to Donahue's house and accidentally provided to Oscar in jail. Donahue took the letter from Oscar, but Donahue appeared to be afraid for himself, his family, and his law practice if Oscar were acquitted. The defense either didn't bother to locate Gerber and Trueblood or heard about them and didn't have them testify at trial. Either is defective representation. Donahue's failure to have the evidence tested by their own criminalist left ridiculous junk science and vague opinion testimony appear to be meaningful and expert. Donahue allowed Powell to make false statements about the facts and evidence, impeach his own witnesses, and argue that people were in two places at the same time, totally unchallenged. Worst of all, the jury never had the opportunity to compare Oscar's real alibi and timeline to the time-traveling fairy tale spun by Powell. Donahue's refusal to make an opening statement gave the jury the impression that Oscar didn't have a story to tell, and Donahue's closing just rambled about how the state didn't prove their case. Although ineffective assistance of counsel is a very high standard, it is more than met here, and since it affected every aspect of the pretrial motions, trial, and sentencing, it should have overturned Oscar's conviction. It's difficult to know where to start with the misconduct of D.A. Powell, both generally and in the Richmond case specifically. As we documented in a past Facebook and website blog post, Powell was a disastrous D.A. and didn't even make it through the primary when it came time for re-election. The criticisms came from all corners and started with his own staff, almost all of whom quit or were fired. The judges disliked him, rebuked him, and overturned his convictions. The defense attorneys were in open warfare with both the office and Powell and the ADA Blyer personally. Powell admitted making cash payments to witnesses from a slush fund and dismissing criminal charges in exchange for testimony. There was sworn testimony in court that Powell arranged sexual encounters for witnesses in TCSO cars and in his own offices, 
and had heroin delivered to jailed witnesses. Seriously, that all really happened. His misconduct in the Richmond case was swift and sure. It was known by 8.30 p.m. on December 27th that there was no evidence of a sexual assault found at autopsy. Yet the following week, Powell filed completely false charges of rape and sodomy against Oscar. Why? Because without the rape charge, he couldn't seek the death penalty. Powell knew that the death sentence would eventually be overturned and commuted to life, but he didn't care. He wanted to appear tough on crime for his re-election campaign. Powell knew that TCSO had Oscar's painter's pants, and that Chamberlain had interviewed two eyewitnesses that placed Oscar on Garden Street during the freezer loading. He also knew that ABO testing on Blake's supposed semen sample eliminated Oscar, as did the ABO testing of the hair found on his sweater, yet he knowingly presented false witness testimony about both. He made statements to the jury that conflicted with the facts and evidence, argued that Brumley and Moscoro had their times wrong, and that both Oscar and Donna were in two places at once. He made up stories of lies and chases and struggles that never happened and tire and heel prints that never matched anything. This conviction should have immediately been overturned for prosecutorial misconduct, exactly as his prior homicide trial had been. TCSO Sergeant Bob Bird, incompetent, dishonest, or both? It's a trick question. He was a terrible investigator, is an obvious liar, and had some kind of specific grudge against Oscar that predated the 1965 case. If you've watched ABC 10's series, Framed by the Golden State Killer, you've seen and heard the proof for yourself. He lied about personally arresting Oscar in his home in both 1965 and 1975. He lied about ordering the destruction of all of the physical evidence in 1977. He claimed never to have met D'Angelo. In fact, the only thing he seemed to admit as true was that he knew Oscar prior to 1965, something he probably should have denied. Oscar, his family, and the woman involved in the 1965 case have always claimed that there was no attack on the beach. And that's why the original investigating TCSO officers didn't arrest Oscar at the scene. They interviewed everyone, didn't see any injuries or problem, and everyone went home. It wasn't until Bird got involved a couple of days later that nothing turned into something. Bird was Farmersville PD. There was no reason for him to be on the case, yet there he was, going to Oscar's house with no sign of a warrant and arresting him at 9 p.m. The next morning, the DA refused to file charges, and Oscar was set to be released. That's when several TCSO officers and Bird showed up at the woman's house and ended up pressuring her to sign the typed statement at the DA's office later that day. We've heard different versions of the original dispute between Bird and Oscar, but everyone agrees that they hated each other over something stupid and unimportant, likely an argument at the packing house loading dock. We've never had conclusive proof that Bird was aware of Oscar before the 1965 case, so we laughed pretty hard when we heard him admit it. Oscar always believed that Bird knew that he was innocent in both cases, and that was the entire point. The ultimate revenge power trip is being able to go into a man's home, haul him away in the night, and send him to jail, prison, or death row for something he didn't do. It sounds extreme, but personal hatred often turns vengeful and even violent. As we've said before, Nothing about Byrd's investigations into Oscar was based in good faith or any type of normal police procedures. We also believe that D'Angelo committed several attacks, going back to 1974, that he meant for Byrd to investigate, which he did, and never solved. If D'Angelo was trying to play some kind of cat-and-mouse game with Byrd, he undoubtedly knew that Byrd was upset about Oscar returning to Tulare County, and that Byrd was openly talking about Oscar as a suspect for the VR and or Porterville Rapist series. We feel that it's highly likely that after D'Angelo was seen by McGowan, Gary Bardoni became the first choice as the man to frame as the VR. The theft of the only gun in the house, followed by D'Angelo's strange accusations, 
the attempt to take Mrs. Bardoni into the bedroom alone, and the late-night watching of their house are creepy and sinister. The fact that it all started hours after the first VR composite was published, and the noticeable similarity between Gary and D'Angelo in age, height, build, hair, and eyes point to a suspect that McGowan might have identified as the VR if Gary ended up framed for a crime in Exeter. Gary's wife was 18 at the time, a year younger than the woman D'Angelo was stalking during the McGowan stakeout a few weeks earlier. Would Mrs. Bardoni have been believable as a possible VR victim? It's frustrating and probably useless to try to guess at D'Angelo's mindset in the week leading up to Donna's murder. It appears that both Beth Snelling and the stakeout victim had been long-term VR targets, and whatever plans he had for them failed. He committed a murder, and then the attempted murder of a police officer, and could never go back to prowling in Visalia. Was he thinking about locating a new victim in Exeter, a believable suspect to frame, or both? Who did the notepad found at the bike scene point to? Imagine the questions that could be answered by a full, good-faith, independent Cal DOJ investigation. There is no question that the supposed success of the Richmond investigation made Byrd's career. A few months after Oscar's arrest, TCSO created their first major crimes unit, and Byrd was given one of the coveted spots on that team. That's also when he was assigned to the armor investigation. Imagine Byrd's mood when he finally got around to checking Oscar's alibi in June after the trial had already started. He couldn't shake Frank Thomas on the time of the freezer loading or Oscar's knowledge of the late comment. Bird also interviewed the Thomas cousin, who said she arrived and saw the loading sometime after three. The hospital records and Bill Irwin's wife impeached Irwin's time estimate, and of course, Chamberlain found and interviewed both Johnny Gerber and Brent Trueblood, who clearly placed Oscar on Garden Street between 3.15 and 3.45. That same day, criminalist Morton also finished the ABO testing on the hair from Oscar's sweater and concluded that it was Oscar's type O and could not have come from Donna. So, here were D.A. Powell and Sergeant Byrd on June 24, 1976. The trial was underway, and they had just triple-confirmed Oscar's alibi and lost their only piece of connecting physical evidence. Obviously, they're going to go to Donahue and the judge, tell them everything, and let the chips fall where they may, right? Of course not. How would Powell get reelected and Byrd keep his spot in major crimes if they admitted arresting and charging someone with no investigation or evidence? How would they tell the community that they had messed up and the monster that killed Donna was still roaming free among them? How much would they owe Oscar when he sued them for false arrest and prosecution? Nope, clearly the only option was to suppress the witnesses and exculpatory evidence, lie in court, and then destroy everything that could point to the real killer. This is always the danger when law enforcement gets tunnel vision and conducts a suspect-based investigation rather than following the evidence. D'Angelo knew exactly how to stage the crime and which investigator would fall for it. He was also uniquely placed to follow and contribute to the investigation from the inside. Byrd never should have been allowed anywhere near the case. He had a personal relationship with Donna and her family and a long-standing bias against Oscar. Those are the nice things that we have to say about him and his work. So that's two more than we have for D.A. Ward and his reprehensible behavior in 2019. In addition to all of the tainted and false evidence and testimony the jury heard at trial, that would all disappear in a proper conviction integrity review, there was all of the evidence that the jury never got to hear, and that Ward completely omitted from his report. Since the standard for exoneration is the probability of guilt, we have to remove the false evidence of guilt from one side of the scale and add the suppressed or unknown evidence of innocence to the other side. Oscar's full alibi, as we can document today, is exactly as he described it to Donahue on Saturday, December 27, 1975. 
we have Donahue's handwritten notes. Although his entire day is confirmed, it's really only the time between 3 and 4.45 that has ever been in dispute. As Powell agreed at trial, and Gene Owen stated, Oscar arrived and departed from the home of his wife's niece right around 3 p.m. Oscar said he drove back to Garden Street and saw the trucks arrive and heard Frank Thomas make the statement about being late as Oscar was getting out of his truck in front of the Rose House. Thomas said that was between 3.10 and 3.20, which matches the drive time from the Owens' house. The original statement from the freezer guys and all three statements from Frank Thomas place the freezer and bike loading at between 30 and 45 minutes. Apparently, there was some standing around talking involved as well. Brett Trueblood said he went back in the Thomas house after the freezer guys left, and Oscar's truck was still at the Rose house. That places Oscar's departure from Garden Street no earlier than 345. There are six pages missing from TCSO Chamberlain's report on the day he interviewed Brent Trueblood, and we feel confident that those pages included his interview with Johnny Gerber, who Thomas, Trueblood, and Johnny's mother placed at the scene. Oscar's drive time to the gas station and then home matches an arrival time between 4.15 and 4.30, just as Oscar's daughters and Carter told TCSO. Owens, Trueblood, and Thomas never changed their stories, gave inconsistent statements, or had relationships with anyone in the case. Was Oscar really at the Owens house at 3 o'clock, as even Powell admitted, or in Woodlake, as Beth Brumley and her mother testified? At 3.30, was Oscar at Garden Street in Visalia, or at Liston Spruce in Exeter. If Trueblood saw Oscar, then Gloria Moscoro saw a different man, driving a plain white truck, not Oscar's distinctive Ford. How was Donna being kidnapped in the Grove off-list at 3.40, five minutes before she left Don Lee's house over four miles away? ADA Alavezos implies that you have to be stupid or crazy to believe Oscar's alibi. Really? We're not the ones who think time travel and human cloning were involved. There is no question that the jury should have heard about the follow-up testing on the sample that Ed Blake claimed contained pre-ejaculation fluid. Mike Grubb examined Blake's sample and identified no semen, sperm cells, or seminal fluid in that sample. And his ABO testing did not contain the antibodies that would have been present in any type O body fluid. Those antibodies would have been found if it were a mixed sample of Donna's A and Oscar's O. Don't worry if you don't get this, but we're going to say it anyway. Grubb found the A antigen and the absence of the A antibody. That confirmed both the presence of a type A body fluid and the absence of any fluid from a person with type O. People with blood type O have antibodies to type A, and an infusion of A causes rejection and even death. The entire reason that Grubb did that ABO testing on Blake's sample was to try to find Oscar's type O. It's easy to understand how important it was. That would have been a double-barreled smoking gun, both physical evidence connecting Oscar to Donna and proof of a sexual motive. Grubb desperately wanted to find that A antibody, more than anything. His boss would have cheered and Powell would have made him the star witness at trial. However, Grubb did not find what was not there. The two steps of the ABO testing excluded type O, B, and AB. Blake's sample was only type A. That was Grubb's scientific conclusion. It's written in his bench notes, and was his testimony at grand jury. Blake's slides contained only Donna's own blood type, which was totally consistent with the microscopic finding of menstrual blood. We want to be perfectly, totally, 100% clear. That result excluded Oscar. That's exculpatory evidence that was kept from the jury, and D.A. Ward is still trying to hide it now. Is that really an honest review of the evidence? or a cover-up. There are two other issues that crushed Oscar's ability to prove his innocence and win his appeals. 
the untimely and unexplained death of Ray Donahue and the destruction of the physical evidence by Byrd. It is undisputed that Donahue died six hours before the start of the appeal hearing on the suppressed eyewitnesses. Why had he driven 45 minutes in the opposite direction of his home, and why at such a high rate of speed? If he had gone to the hearing, he could have testified one of two ways. He had not known during the trial that Gerber and Trueblood had seen and spoken to Oscar during the freezer loading, or he had known, but had not told Oscar and had not called them to testify at trial. If he had known, Oscar could have claimed ineffective assistance of counsel and sued him for malpractice. If he didn't know, the DA suppressed the witnesses, and Oscar would have won a new trial and walked free because the evidence was gone. There has never, at any time, been any explanation for Byrd's destruction of all of the case evidence in 1977. None. It was highly illegal and precluded any possibility of a retrial if Oscar ever won an appeal. Since Byrd has lied about doing it, TCSO Brian Johnson refuses to answer questions, and DA Ward ignored it, we are free to draw the only conclusion we can. Byrd knew that Oscar was innocent, and he didn't want the evidence tested against the VR, EAR, or Porterville rapist cases. It's incredibly dishonest that D.A. Ward has refused to address the obvious civil rights violations committed by TCSO, the Tulare D.A.'s office, and Ray Donahue in this case. Oscar was entitled to due process under the law, and that included the right to question Donahue about his defense and knowledge of the eyewitnesses, disclosure of all exculpatory findings by TCSO and the D.A., and full access to all of the physical evidence for DNA testing. These rights are guaranteed in both the California and U.S. constitutions. The proven intentional misconduct is staggering and ongoing. That should weigh heavily in favor of Oscar's innocence. There should be absolutely zero faith in the conviction or the appeals, and that alone demands a full exoneration hearing in front of a neutral judge. Paper Trail, Episode 117 and then you can't ignore the fact of uh, uh, the professionalism of the Visalia Police Department and what Jason, Chief Jason Salazar and, and the men and women of his department were able to do on an old case that they never gave up um, and that they still uh, save stuff. Uh, you know, the, the evidence is still there. That raises another question we have yet to see addressed. By anyone. Why hasn't there been a full independent investigation into every single case D'Angelo handled while he was wearing a badge? As we've already discussed, that should have happened in 1979 when he was convicted of shoplifting. A police officer with a conviction for a crime of dishonesty could never be sworn as a witness, and the presumption is that he could have manufactured evidence or lied on the witness stand in past criminal cases. How many people did he frame for burglaries he committed, and then solved? That seems like an obvious question, since the burglary rate mysteriously doubled when D'Angelo arrived, and dropped in half when he left Exeter. How many times did D'Angelo use the power of his uniform, car, badge, and gun to kidnap, rape, assault, or kill? How often did he use his inside knowledge and access to ongoing police investigations to facilitate his crimes? He knew patrol schedules, stakeouts, radio calls, and investigative techniques. How many crime scenes did he stage? How many innocent men did he send to prison? How many investigations did he infiltrate and steer away from himself? How many times did he call in fake tips? How many crimes did he commit that don't fall into the known VREAR-ONS cases? Where is the open and public inquiry into these questions, and why isn't it being done on the state or federal level? Leaving these investigations to individual police jurisdictions that failed to identify or stop him is not going to result in answers. We're also confident that it will take an outside investigation to get any clear answers or criminal charges in the homicide of Jennifer Armour. First, 
Sheriff Wiley determined that she had not been murdered, but rather had a drowning accident. That announcement pushed her case out of view for VPD, and the critical time to canvas witnesses in Visalia and Exeter was lost forever. Did someone find Jennifer's missing clothing? Where? We will never know. VPD didn't realize that the VR had already kidnapped a Mount Whitney girl blocks from Beth Snelling's house because TCSO hid the truth. In early 1976, TCSO gave the case to Bird, who already knew that Oscar had an alibi and couldn't have killed Jennifer. Bird did not want any connection made between Beth and Jennifer, since that could lead to questions about Donna. So he accused three boys from Visalia, aged 14, 15, and 16, of somehow being involved in transporting and killing Jennifer. Bird created the story that the kids were partying and something, quote, got out of hand. Never mind that Jennifer had no drugs or alcohol in her system, or that there was no evidence that the boys were with Jennifer or anywhere near Exeter that night. Case closed. No further investigation. Who knows what would have happened if VPD Sergeant Vaughn hadn't contacted TCSO about Jennifer's case in 2017. Johnson and Dempsey did not want to hear about any connection between Jennifer and the VR or Jennifer and Donna. Apparently, that's when they got the brilliant idea to clear Jennifer's case by announcing that Oscar killed her. They knew he had been cleared by TCSO in 1975, but they didn't care. How could Oscar's family prove that? We know now that they were also trying to get witnesses to say that Oscar was the VR and had killed Claude Snelling. In the end, TCSO Johnson and Dempsey caught themselves in the trap they tried to set for Oscar. They publicly laid out all of the solid connections between Donna and Jennifer's homicides and started to fill in a possible VR connection to Jennifer. Whoops. Honestly, we expected TCSO to just sit down and stay quiet after D'Angelo's arrest. But no, just months after claiming that Oscar, quote, may have murdered Jennifer, they publicly named D'Angelo as a suspect in her kidnapping and homicide, citing exactly what we and Vaughn told them connected her case to Snelling and the VR. So let's see if we can follow this. The same person obviously killed Donna and Jennifer. But wait, no. Actually, the same suspect kidnapped Beth and killed Jennifer. But that man didn't kill Donna, because she and Jennifer were killed by the same person after all. Did we get that straight? Clear as mud now? We laugh, but TCSO and the Tulare DA keep arguing all of this with a straight face. What is the evidence that proves D'Angelo was the VR and killed Claude Snelling? Rumors are that D'Angelo confessed to being the VR, but who knows? The search and arrest warrants cite only the common VR EAR MO points, you know, the exact same ones we put in the podcast and on our website, and the fact that D'Angelo lived and served in Exeter during the crimes. So when we contacted VPD, Sacramento Sheriffs, and the EAR task force, and said we were all looking for the same single suspect who lived in Exeter between 1974 and 76, we were totally and completely right. Except about Donna Richmond? If Oscar didn't and couldn't have killed Donna, who did? The same person all of the evidence has always pointed to. The man who killed Jennifer and Claude Snelling, kidnapped Beth, and attempted to murder VPD McGowan. Is that evidence circumstantial? Yes. Just like the circumstantial evidence they've used to charge D'Angelo in the EAR kidnappings that don't have DNA, and for murdering Snelling, and the Majoris. That circumstantial evidence is common MO, along with motive, means, and opportunity. Apparently, it's fine to charge D'Angelo in cases where Sacramento threw away the rape kits and the eyewitnesses are deceased or were hypnotized and will be barred from testifying, but not when Sergeant Bird destroyed all of the evidence. Just think about it. How can we ever really know if law enforcement is telling the truth when they close a cold case without a trial and conviction? They make an announcement to the press, say they have compelling evidence, they know who the killer was, and the case is closed. Does the press ever demand proof or solid answers? No, they simply report what they are told as fact. 
what if it's all a lie? What if they can't or don't want to devote more resources to a case? What if they realize they made a mistake and try to cover it up to avoid embarrassment and financial liability? That is exactly why there are rules and laws that hold law enforcement, attorneys, and prosecutors to such high standards of duty and truth. We must be able to trust that the justice system is operating in good faith. Where does this leave the question that was supposed to be addressed in a conviction integrity review? Is the evidence that would be admissible in 2019 sufficient to support the conviction? Or is there clear and convincing evidence of actual innocence? There is no physical evidence connecting Oscar and Donna. No murder weapon, no motive, tainted and coerced witnesses, no possible time to commit the kidnapping and murder, and a consistent alibi supported by multiple disinterested witnesses. We can focus on Oscar's invoice book, but that requires that we ignore the fact that it was found with someone else's notepad and that they both had been wiped of fingerprints. How does that support Powell's theory that it accidentally fell out of Oscar's truck during a struggle? Even if you believe that the clothing trail was left by the killer and not TCSO, it wasn't on Oscar's property, in his house, or his truck. They were random locations between Exeter and Visalia. If the invoice book and clothing were planted, that points directly to D'Angelo, an offender who was known to bring evidence from prior crimes and planted on targeted suspects. He also left a trail of his victim's clothing pointing to an innocent neighbor and staged a kidnap scene to make it look as if the victim had gone out for the evening. The lack of fingerprints on the invoice book, notepad, bottles and cans, bike and Donna's shoes points directly to intentional planting, not accidental or panicked dropping of items. The idea that the three alleles from the hair slide tested in 2011 points to Oscar is not only scientifically untrue, but it was not the finding of the DOJ criminalist in the case. That is plainly stated in the report Ward has sitting right in front of him. Podcast listeners have heard all about the slide and seen for themselves that it was made at the same time using the same tools and workstation as 13 of Oscar's own hair samples. One of the slides contains hairs from both Donna and Oscar. Biological samples from the victim and suspect are not even allowed to be in the same lab, let alone mixed. All of the slides were stored together with missing and broken covers in the same package for over 30 years. Morton told the Tulare DA in writing that the slide was not made, handled, or stored as evidence, and there is a 2004 court ruling that confirms those facts. There was no cellular source identified for the alleles. There was unknown male DNA accidentally mixed into the sample, and there is no way to know if the alleles came from one, two, or three different males. Three alleles out of 13 is not a match or significant, it would match about one out of every nine random white males. Oscar matched 10 alleles to the test's male control, and they aren't related, and the control male was not Donna's killer. This is exactly the type of junk science that is banned from every court in the U.S., and D.A. Ward knows that. Just like he knows that Morton, the Tulare Superior Court, and DOJ all found, and stated in writing, that there was no semen or any component of semen on that slide. D.A. Ward is lying. It's shocking and unbelievable, yet it's true. D.A. Ward admitted that his office had never conducted a conviction integrity review, and his choice of team members, focus on appealable errors, and refusal to review the transcripts and actual evidence makes it clear that his team lacked essential training on specific topics including errors in criminal justice known to be factors in wrongful convictions, human error in interpretation and emerging issues in forensic science that may impact past convictions secured by the use of older scientific methods, and specific investigative techniques useful for cold cases. D.A. Ward did not seek out an open exchange of information and ideas regarding the case review. 
he did not notify Clifton's family of the review or contact us as the holders of the defense file to request information or documents. There was absolutely no good faith effort from the DA investigators to collect information, and in fact, their examination of the evidence was specifically limited to reviewing past appeals briefs and decisions in the case. DA Ward did not communicate the rationale for his decision to Clifton's family, but rather executed a PR blast consisting of false statements of fact designed to discredit the actual evidence in the case, a literal cover-up. In the interests of justice, D.A. Ward should have vacated Clifton's conviction. Not only does the current evidence fail to support the conviction beyond a reasonable doubt, there is clear and convincing evidence of actual innocence. In the interests of justice, D.A. Ward should have ordered a full investigation into Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. as a suspect in the homicide of Donna Jo Richmond. Dave Ward has failed to uphold the mission of district attorneys in California to elevate truth and accuracy above judicial decisions and procedure. He has failed Ms. Richmond, the Clifton family, and the citizens of his county and the state. That all seems pretty straightforward and self-proving. The facts are the facts, and there can only be one truth. However, the only way to appeal the findings in D.A. Ward's report was to take it back to California Attorney General Becerra. Since we are alleging misconduct by an Exeter police officer, multiple TCSO officers, D.A. Powell, D.A. Ward, and A.D.A. Alavezos, there is a clear process to follow. Quote, the Attorney General will review citizen complaints against a law enforcement agency or its employees for possible investigation when substantive allegations of unlawful conduct are made and all appropriate local resources for redress have been exhausted or when the local district attorney is the subject of the complaint. After Ward issued his report, we received a letter from the attorney handling the case at the AG's office outlining the same tired process arguments that Oscar always faced with his appeals. Ward's report could only be overturned if we could prove that he abused his discretion. Process shouldn't matter in a claim of actual innocence, or when some of the unlawful conduct involved the office and specific individuals that wrote the report. However, the main factual claim in the report, that the killer's semen was DNA tested in 2011, was clearly false. The DOJ report stated the exact opposite, and the supporting bench notes proved it scientifically. That's a clear abuse of discretion that undermines Ward's entire case review and it's a determination that the AG's office could make in five minutes. But they didn't. We also pointed out, using Ward and Alavesos' own words, that they had failed to review the transcripts and evidence, and then lied about it in their official report. The entire assertion that they had conducted a conviction integrity review was false. They never considered actual innocence. Again, this is another obvious and gross abuse of discretion which Ward has admitted to the AG's office and the press. So the case gets a DOJ investigation, right? Nope. Like us, you're probably wondering what in the heck is going on at the AG's office. Aren't they supposed to step in and get it right when police and prosecutors get it wrong? Who else will keep them honest and make sure they don't make mistakes or let bias cloud their judgment? We wish we had some solid answers. Instead, we have a lot more questions, probably enough to fill an entire podcast episode. If you thought there was no way for this case to get more bizarre, you were wrong. We were wrong too. Although we haven't covered it in a podcast episode, a few months ago we did a blog and Facebook post on D.A. Powell and his ADA, Brent Blyer. We won't dive back into it here, but what we found was beyond belief and totally true. However, we didn't include the craziest thing we discovered, that there was a third ADA in the inner circle of the Tulare DA's office during Clifton's trial, and he is the father of the attorney that A.G. Becerra assigned to oversee Oscar's Conviction Integrity Review. What are the odds that out of all of the people working at the California Attorney General's office in 2019, we would randomly be assigned someone with such a direct connection to the original prosecution team? Whether by chance or design, 
That's exactly what happened, and we soon learned two more disturbing details. The AG attorney discussed the case with his father, and he himself went to Divisadero Junior High with Brent Trueblood and many of the VR victims and their families. Yes, attorneys are supposed to avoid cases where there is a real or perceived conflict of interest or bias. There is also a requirement to disclose personal connections to parties or witnesses and any outside knowledge of the facts. You've probably already guessed that none of that recusal or disclosure ever happened. We just accidentally stumbled upon the information after work one Friday evening. There is no mistake here. As usual, we have all of the receipts. Additional research uncovered piles of evidence of serious misconduct by the father, making it impossible to trust anything he might have to say on the matter. We could fill an entire book with nothing more than the crazy, unimaginable drama that followed the father's entire law career. However, it's what we don't know that really concerns us. What knowledge and involvement did he have in the Richmond investigation and Oscar's trial? Did he prosecute any cases where D'Angelo was the investigating officer? Meaning, was he involved in sending any of D'Angelo's other framing victims to jail or prison? Does he have knowledge of additional exculpatory evidence or witnesses that were suppressed by the DA's office? Is he afraid that he will be implicated in wrongdoing? Does his son feel the need to cover for him by burying claims of actual innocence and wrongful conviction? Why doesn't the AG attorney believe Brent Trueblood? Did he form an opinion of Trueblood based on personal interactions or impressions from the 8th grade? We should never be asking these questions or wondering about the personal motives and biases of an attorney assigned to a claim of actual innocence in the Attorney General's office, but yet here we are. If we didn't feel unhinged before, we surely do now. You try telling this story. D'Angelo staged scenes and planted Oscar's invoice book to frame him for not only Donna's murder, but also Jennifer and the entire VR crime series. Bird and Powell suppressed all the exculpatory physical evidence and witnesses presented false evidence and testimony and coerced witnesses. Bird then ordered the illegal destruction of all of the physical evidence to ensure that it could never be matched to the real killer, presumably the VR, EAR, or Porterville rapist. The Tulare DA's office then actively hid the evidence destruction for 20 years and made bad faith arguments to the courts about evidence, testimony, and facts in the case that they knew to be false. The current Tulare DA published a report full of easily provable lies in an attempt to cover up all of the past Exeter PD, TCSO, and Tulare DA misconduct. And the attorney assigned to the case by the Attorney General refused to find any abuse of discretion by the Tulare DA or refer the case for an independent DOJ investigation, which may involve covering up potential misconduct or knowledge of wrongdoing by his own father. While we understand why people may think this is a conspiracy theory, it's really just a conspiracy, and it has nothing to do with us, our investigative work, or the podcast. The facts are well-documented and sourced. We do admit to getting one thing really wrong. We truly believed that once the EAR was identified through DNA, and everyone learned that he lived and worked in Exeter during the VR years, Donna and Jennifer's murders would be prosecuted with Claude Snelling's case. We knew from the first day after D'Angelo's arrest that we were wrong. We now understand how we made such a stupid mistake. We didn't believe we were looking at conspiracies, cover-ups, bad faith, or intentional misconduct. We honestly just saw a terrible police investigation conducted by inexperienced officers who were too close to the victim and her family. It wasn't surprising that tunnel vision led to desperate measures to make the evidence fit the suspect, and fake expert testimony and junk science were the rule in 1970s criminal cases. DAs fight every appeal and defense request to test evidence, and they show up to oppose every parole hearing. In our experience, law enforcement and prosecutors almost always resist claims of actual innocence unless the defense can prove who really committed the crime. That proof can be physical evidence like DNA or circumstantial like MO, motive, means, and opportunity. Sometimes it's a recanting eyewitness or new alibi evidence. In short, the mistake is easier to admit if the crime remains in the solved column. 
That satisfies the community and comes with little political cost. We still think that would have been the smart move for D.A. Ward. After D'Angelo's arrest, Ward could have shrugged, admitted that Byrd fell for staging and framing designed by a serial killer who was a highly trained active-duty police officer working with inside knowledge. Nobody would have batted an eye if he asked the court for a hearing to determine actual innocence and a possible exoneration for Oscar. The Clifton family could have put in a claim with the state fund to compensate for wrongful incarceration, and the county might have been able to avoid a financial hit. Donna and Jennifer's homicides would have actually strengthened the Snelling and Majori cases instead of undermining them with a fake DNA exoneration of D'Angelo. So why didn't Ward do that? Our best guess now is that he was fully aware of the intentional misconduct and ongoing cover-up in the Richmond case, and there may be other evidence or additional crimes that he is hoping will not come to light. All we know for sure is that if Ward really believed that Oscar was guilty and D'Angelo was innocent, his report and press interviews wouldn't be full of false evidence and lies about material facts. He would have made a good-faith effort to review all of the transcripts, statements, and evidence, and communicated with the Clifton family instead of issuing a PR blast to terrorize them. (music) 